Hey there, everybody. What is going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 255, and it's been a minute, all right? So uh, I missed last week. It's actually Friday. I normally record these like on Wednesday. It's on Friday. Uh, last week I was over in Spokane, kind of seeing some old friends, mentor, that kind of thing. Uh, and so wasn't near the uh, microphone to be able to do anything. And then this week, just being open for a minute. Like, I, I, I got back, uh, did Sunday, kind of wrapped up a series on our vision, values, and vibe as a church, and then Monday just kind of fell into a funk, right? Like, do you have, like, those spans of days in your life where you're just kind of like, there's no reason, there's nothing attached to it, but just the level of motivation and clarity of thought just kind of goes right into the drink? Like, that's what it was. And all through the week, man, I just kept going like, yeah, I need to, I need to work on a podcast, uh, I don't want to work on a podcast. Uh, I got to work on some budget stuff. Uh, I don't want to work on some budget stuff. I need to work on some church stuff for this new series. Uh, I don't want to do that. I should just vegeta- vegetate and watch a show. Yeah, I don't even want to do that. So I just felt very aimless for much of the week. It was like the strangest thing. And again, no reason for it. It's just that bummer that in reality, we are the sum of our chemical parts. And sometimes your chemicals that week decide, you know what? We're just not in this, man. You're just along for a ride and you're just going to be okay with that. So uh, I believe uh, in, in being an advocate of being open and transparent and admitting that we're all kind of human and that's why we need Jesus. And so that was kind of my week. It was just one of those like, Hmm, okay, cool. So it was like that. And and finally, it's Friday morning, and it kind of lifted. Like, I woke up and, and you know, woke up to some news that broke my heart, but but also my spirit was lifted, even though there was news that was heartbreaking at the same time. All that kind of gets in there in the stuff of life. Uh, but I'm like, hey, I can do a podcast now. And so what I want to do for episode 255, why not go with something as simple and heartwarming as Marxism and, I don't know, let's say fascism, because those are fun words, and uh, maybe we can unpack some of that. Now, kind of my thinking about behind this. I think I'm going to title this, uh, Don't Hate Your Marxist So Much You Fall in Love With Your Fascist. Or you can even flip it, right? Don't hate your fascist so much you fall in love with your Marxist, right? Like both of those are kind of equally true, right? Like we have these social movements like Antifa because they're anti-fascist and yet they're kind of on the spectrum that you go like, oh, you're really like a bad group of people. And on the flip, you got like the Proud Boys, right? Which are like kind of like the modern embodiment of a fascist movement. And, you know, they're just as crazy too, right? So so I think there's this danger either way that you can kind of go to either side and, and kind of be there. But the average person, certainly probably the average person listening to this podcast, you're probably not thinking that you're flirting with Marxism or you're flirting with fascism. But I've been thinking about it because... Uh, there's been a lot of things in the news lately about political leaders around the world, right? So there was just recently uh, the election in Italy, I think it was, where uh, this woman was just brought into power, and she stems from a, a background that historically, I'm not going to say presently, but historically, that party had some fascist roots. Um, there's some questions about some of the countries, you know, even in Eastern Europe right now, uh, of having some fascist tendencies. There's even talk of there was always concern that Putin was a communist. Maybe he's really just a fascist, uh, and maybe that's the real danger. And then our own culture, you know, I, I hear this 
kind of thrown around a bit, right? Like, like Trump was more of a fascist-esque type of leader, and then AOC is a Marxist, right? Or Pelosi's a Marxist, you know, or the the squad, they're a bunch of Marxists. And so these words get thrown around, fascist and Marxist and everything else. And, and as I was thinking about this, again, I, I don't, I don't know if those are the right words to ascribe to what's going on. I think there's probably other things that that you could probably lock into. But I did think about it from the perspective of a danger that can happen, which is that you are so worried about, let's say, the Marxists in our culture. You're so worried that the squad is trying to make us make us all a Marxist society that you would be tempted to say, and the only thing to duel with a Marxist is a fascist. So I'm going to embrace then those with fascist ideas or ideologies to kind of combat the danger of the Marxist threat. Or you could reverse it, right? You could say, I'm going to go ahead and back the Marxist because that's the only way you can deal with a thug fascist, right? And, and so I do think what is always true to human nature is that we can so vilify one side of a thing, we begin to idolize its antithesis, not because we really do objectively, but because it's like a blunt force tool to deal with the problem, right? And so if you think liberals are destroying America, then what do you think? Well, it's going to take a conservative to fight that. And not just any conservative, but a real thug of a conservative to fight what I perceive to be reckless, radicalized leftists, right? Like that's going to be the danger, which at one level is just broken because it totally messes up what our calling is as Christians, right? Our calling as Christians is to be in the system, to have cares about things that have political connection, but to filter those through Jesus. And I have it on pretty good authority that Jesus is neither a fascist or a Marxist. Jesus is neither a conservative nor a liberal. Jesus is neither a Republican or a Democrat. Like Jesus is like, man, I'm pissing all of those groups off all the time. And there's things that all of those groups do that I really love, right? Like that's going to be true. Like there's going to be things that all the different systems do that somehow can have a connection connection to things that Jesus advocated for, but it also has intentions that are far away from Jesus and misses the whole scope of what he's really trying to do, which is issue or usher in a kingdom that does not comport to the different styles of this world. It's not going to fit any political ideology or narrative comparatively because the kingdom is, its most radical thing is selflessness. And all the kingdoms of the world and all the systems that exist are not really predicated on selflessness, but rather ensuring security from an ideological perspective. That's very different than a sacrificial give himself up on the cross, Christ and kingdom, right? This is all about, we all pick a way to secure ourselves, maybe at the cost of others, but that's okay as long as it secures my identity. And that there's nothing about that that's kingdom or Christian. So that's one of the risks in this. But I think the other risk in this is the risk of witness because we embrace these blunt tools and we're so blinded by opposition to another side of a discussion or the people on that side of a discussion uh, that we're willing to sacrifice our kingdom ethics and embrace some of these political tones or political agendas or um, power grabs, maybe, you know, or, or, or uses of blunt force power to then topple this other people group. And that's kind of the danger. So as I thought about this, it reminded me of an old folklore in Jewish history uh, when it came to, to demons and demon possession and how you do exorcism of demons and that kind of thing. And so one of the beliefs is a person might be possessed with a lower class demon, right? It's a family member. You love them. You know, you think about some of the stories in the Bible, like the, the boy that throws himself in the water and into the fire and everything else, and he's possessed. And so it's like, man, we need Jesus to deal with this kid's possession. Well, 
before Jesus was just rolling in and speaking with authority and doing things, uh, there was this belief that you could um, summon a more powerful demon to deal with the lesser demon. So you get a demon that's bigger and badder, and he scares the littler demon out of the person you love. Maybe you somehow pay homage to the demon. I don't know how you pay a demon. Like, Is there a demon bucks? I don't know. But somehow you get the bigger demon to scare out the little demon, and that's what frees your, your, your loved one or your friend or whatever else, right? And and that's what I was thinking about when it comes to this idea of kind of the Marxist versus the fascist. I do think that there is a potential danger that we can be so fearful of the one, we kind of summon the spirit of the other to deal with the one that we fear, right? And in the political world, I do think there is a flirtation that is happening. Not that literally I'm going to say they're Marxists and fascists, but rather we're calling each other that already. That's happening. That's the irony, right? So the Marxist is saying Trump's a fascist and the, the, the conservatives are saying AOC's a Marxist. So the terminology is already getting thrown around, which is kind of reckless, right? Um, but on top of that, I think there is a latent concern or latent potential that you go, yeah, and you kind of just need more of a fascist to deal with the threat of the Marxist. Now, at this point, I, I've been using these words a lot, and, and I, I know we've probably all forgotten our civics classes in high school, and we've forgotten our world history and all of that kind of thing, and we hear these words thrown around a lot, and a lot of times I see people throwing around these words, and I'm like, do you know what these words exactly mean, what this is all about? So I'm going to give you a very abbreviated definition of Marxist and fascist so you can understand kind of the inner workings of the two, and why, frankly, as a Christian, we would, A, not want to really call anybody these things unless we're really positive they are these things. Things. B, we don't want to entertain either one of these things as somehow a, a useful tool or a useful demonizer. We want to be more level-headed about it, right? And in that, we want to remember, above all else, we're a witness, we're a kingdom ambassador, we're a representative of Jesus. And, and more than calling out either one of these groups, we want to be reaching out to all of these groups, right? And anything that's between reality and the most extreme form of these things, we want to be a source of bridge building. We want to be a source of gospel sharing. We want to be a source of kingdom flourishing. We want to be a source of like being like Jesus to these people. And and that's the most important thing. So in the name calling, let's remember that name calling doesn't really help anything. Uh, and the danger is the more you call them name A, the more you may want to rely on somebody of a similar name B to deal with name A, right? That's the thing. So Marxism argues that capitalism is a form of economic and social reproduction that is inherently unfair and flawed. And because of this will ultimately fail, ultimately fail because it would just implode on itself as kind of the theory behind this. It says capitalism is defined as a mode of production which by which business owners, capitalists, own all of the means of production. They own the factories, the tools, the machinery, the raw materials, the final product, and the profits earned from their sale, while workers, which is labor, are hired for wages and have no claim on those things, right? They don't own the factory, the tools, anything else. They're just hired to do stuff. Moreover, the wages paid to the workers are lower than the economic value that the work creates for the capitalists. This surplus of labor is the source of capitalist profits and is the root of inherent class struggles between labor and capital. That's I know you'd be like, okay, I got that. Others may be like, I didn't get that. The simple form of, of the idea is saying that, you know, the, the capitalists are in control of everything and the way they make money is not just that they're backing their companies and buying the raw materials and all of that, but they're hiring labor at a, at a price that still makes it possible for them to have an overall 
profit as opposed to a loss or an equality in there. And because of that, labor is taken advantage of. Labor can never kind of get ahead. It's always going to be the capitalists get more powerful. Labor stays more suppressed. Capitalists will have increases that are far superior to labor who get a little bit more stalled at economic development. And from that, Marx then said the only way to deal with that is really revolution, right? Because this is fundamentally going to be unfair. It's going to be flawed. The rich will get richer. The poor get poorer. And therefore, you have revolution. And then you need, and this is where Marx was kind of unique in this, you need an apparatus that ensures a kind of uh, kind of economic equality. Eventually, that becomes the tool of socialism and communism. Socialism and communism are not the same as Marxism. Marxism is kind of like a, a sociological economic philosophy. Socialism and communism are the apparatus used to try to ensure that equality. Uh, and clearly, they they have failed. And but cap cap or uh, communism has clearly kind of failed itself. So, socialism people can debate more. Understandably, they can debate it more. Uh, because there are places where it kind of does work, places where it kind of doesn't work, and so it's kind of a debatable. There are really amazing, good Christian people that really embrace socialism in places around the world, and it works for them. And then there's other good Christian people that can't stand socialism. Either way, those are just mechanisms of government to try to ensure a level of equality. But Marxism is really the idea that I kind of shared there at the beginning. It's just this idea that you know you've got uh, you know the capitalists and labor, and it's always unequal and Marx was like this isn't right and part of Marx what he was drawing off of is looking back at human history saying you know when we were hunter gatherers it was more of a collective you didn't have this kind of capitalist labor divide it that capitalist labor divide didn't come for a long time and then when it did it was oppressive and it brought slavery and all these different kinds of things and so that was kind of his thinking behind this right so you have the Marxist that's a Marxist right and so a Marxist you know, in today's world, you know, the kind of Marxist that you kind of come across is more like, man, there should be healthcare for everybody and it should be more fair and college should be free. And again, you know, the capitalist is like, or the, at least the, the conservative person on the economic spectrum is like, where's the money coming for all that? Right. So great heart, terrible way to, how you can pay for all this, right? That's kind of the attitude behind it, but it's usually just kind of a bleeding heart person that you get more as a Marxist and maybe a person that isn't really thinking through how you legitimately pay for it. Their answer is just tax the rich, right? That's kind of their answer all the time, right? So there's your Marxist, right? But then your fascist, fascist is kind of the other side of the equation. You can say a Marxist is on the far left. Well, a fascist Fascism is on the far right. It's authoritarian. It is ultra-nationalist. Its political ideology and movement is characterized by a dictatorial leader, centralized, uh, kind of autocratic spirit, right? Uh, and militarism, right? There's this forcible suppression of opposition, belief in a kind of a natural social hierarchy, subordination of individual interests or rights. So it's not really big on democracy. The idea that you would let everybody have a vote is kind of insane to them. Um, and there's this idea that what's more important is the good of the nation or the race. And there's a strong regimentation of society and the economy. And so <clears throat> the the fascist is, again, going to be the one that says, you know, we need to fight for nationalism. We need to fight for a strong military. We need to fight for a sense of what our true heritage is, this idea of kind of a melting pot, or as I like to say, it's more of a tossed salad. Um, that, that doesn't serve us so much. We need to get back to these certain kind of 
foundational roots, usually rooted in a type of, of idealized history or something like that. Uh, that's a bit more of your fascist, right? And so as there's these debates going on right now about like in Italy, is she a fascist or not a fascist and everything else? Well, she's saying, I'm going to fight for God and country and kind of this, just our national identity. I, I, you know, I don't want the open borders. I don't want all of this mixing of things like, and that starts to sound to some people like it's a fascist thing. Or even when people are accusing President Trump of being like fascist, which again, I don't think that's the right label, but it was like, oh, well, he, he doesn't, he doesn't like these people. He wants to get back to this one great idealized America. He threatens to use the National Guard in states against their will if they're not doing what he thinks to, to, to keep law and order, which is, that's a big thing in fascism. Law and order is a really big component of fascism. And again, it's going to be law and order for a certain vision of the culture that is very myopic and tight as opposed to broad and open. Like that's all going to be true. And so in this, what can happen then is you go, hey man, I'm no fascist, but you know what you need right now to fight the, the, the AOC and squad Marxists? You need a far-right authoritarian ultra-nationalist, right, who has a real strong focus on militarism and is going to be forcibly able to suppress opposition. Like, you start to go, like, that's the only way you can fight this, right? The only way you can fight is to really fight fire with fire. I, I heard a pastor in a message say that this week uh, when it came to political things, right? The only way we're going to be able to take America back for Christ is we fight fire with fire. And I'm like, that is as far away from the gospel as you can get. This notion of the only way we're going to take the world back for Christ is to fight fire with fire. It is literally demonic what he said there when he said that, right? This idea that the only way you can win is to fight misses the fact that Jesus said the only way you win is to die. Right, That's the only way we really win in this world is we die to ourselves. We die to him. He said that, right? You want to gain your life? Lose it. That's what he says. And, and, and you go, well, is that literal or is that figurative? And I go, well, the answer is kind of yes. It's figurative every day. Paul said this. I die daily, right? And then what's he do in the dying daily? He makes himself a servant to all. He goes, I mean, Paul talks about the fact that he's like, man, I could have claimed my privileges. I could have stood by my rights. I could have done all of this. And what he's gonna, he consistently do, he says, it's not about me. It's about Christ. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to love you. When he goes to Rome and he actually leverages his citizenship, it's not for his freedom. It's not for his security. It's not for his prosperity. It's not for his future. It is solely so he can share with Caesar, Caesar the message of Jesus. The only reason he leveraged his rights was to make much of Jesus. He didn't leverage them for himself. He leveraged it for the good of the gospel. And man, I, I, I go, well, he's just following the, the the pattern that Jesus set for all of us, right? That more than getting pulled into the fights and the debates and, and the, the, the cultural tensions, rather than identifying as on the right or on the left, like the Christian should be like, it's not that. The Christian should be like, man, all of these things, these left-right divisions show the problem, and I'm called to be a part of the solution. And the solution is not fight fire with fire. The solution is to actually take what Jesus said seriously and become a peacemaker. If you're just a stirrer of the pot, right? If you're just kind of a troublemaker, a rabble rouser, you kind of back left or back right, and that and you take joy in seeing the other side's head explode when something happens, like when Biden has a gaffe or says something that you just go like, man, that guy, he's struggling with his words and he's struggling to communicate his thoughts. Like if you just think that's hilarious and you mock that, probably not great. If you think it's really hilarious that Trump is getting busted for something or did something that everybody's pouncing on him for and you think it's awesome, probably not great. Not as a Christian, 
right? If you're on the left or the right, yeah, man, it's so fun to see your opposition just do something dumb, step in it somehow, get their just desserts. We love that. But that thing that we're loving in that, that is an ugly thing in us. That's not a beautiful thing. That's not a Jesus flourishing thing. That is not a peacemaking thing. That is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. It's not that that is being invoked in us. It is this sense of like scandal, gleeful joy that somebody's getting their own. And that's toxic for us. That's toxic for the world. Like nobody's getting reached through that. In fact, I was reading a report here just a couple of weeks ago that was saying that by 2045, uh, evangelical Christianity will be like a much greater reduced minority in the culture. And by 2075, it may be just like this tiny little entity someplace. And I'm post-millennial, which means I believe the kingdom's expanding and growing in the world and it goes on to completion. Like I'm, I'm in that space. But I think it's a little bit like from culture to culture, it can be like the stock market that rises and falls and rises and falls and rises and falls. And there's a real part of me that goes, if if that is true, and, and again, I don't think evangelicalism really represents all of Christianity. In fact, more than ever, I think I've got probably pretty loose borders on who falls into the term Christian. I used to be like one of those really tight, we're the only ones, we're the conservative Protestant evangelicals. It's all two million of us are going to heaven, the rest are out, right? And, and now I'm kind of like, man, I see a lot of beauty in the Catholic Church. I see a lot of beauty in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I see a lot of beauty in the mainstream churches at times. I see a lot of beauty in a lot of places. And I'm, I want to be much more um, hopeful that the gospel and grace is bigger than if I'm doing it right and getting it right on everything. Because that's just to seem like, man, the only way you're really saved, the only way you really know you're saved is if you comport to all of these things that we've concluded. And that's, that's the only assurance of your salvation is that you are a conservative evangelical Protestant. Like that sounds like, okay, then it's not really just saved by grace and he carries you along to completion, but you got to get a lot of things right. So it sounds like works to me at that point, either be intellectual works or, you know, kind of obedience works. And I go like, well, no, those play out in our lives. But boy, I I think about all the ways I'm probably wrong and I'm trying to play that out too, right? So this is a bit of a sidebar, but I kind of go like, all right, I think the tribe is probably much bigger. I pray, I hope it's, it's, it's kind of an, I don't know, I'm gonna call it a dogmatic hopefulness that I go, the tribe is bigger than just my own little corner of the world, right? But in my own little corner of the world, if the church shrinks and begins to die, I go, that's a self-inflicted wound. That will be a self-inflicted wound in my mind because I go, we're getting so pulled into these debates. We're getting so pulled into the fray. We're getting so pulled into vilifying versus evangelizing. We're getting so impassioned about stuff that doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter in comparison to the kingdom. And we're we're just not known for our peacemaking skills. We're not known for being uh, just kind and nice, beautiful encouraging, flourishing, um, kind of above it all. Like I was even thinking this week about how, how much we sound anxious. We sound fearful. Some of our most well-known evangelical leaders will leverage, like we should be afraid. We should be fearful. This is a dangerous thing. This is a threat to our freedom. This is a threat to religious liberty. This is a threat to, and I'm like, man, if I'm a disbelieving person in the world, Christians sound so afraid. You bring nothing to the table that I need. Like you sound like you just get more fearful when you become a believer because now you got all these rules you keep up with and you're saying you're really oppressed and in, in constant threat and the world around you is coming to get you. Why would I want that? Like if we sounded courageous in that, if we sounded kind and compassionate in that, if we sounded like we we loved those who are against us in that, that might be really compelling. But we, we just sound like, you know, like, the sky is falling. 
who who would want that? Who I, I don't want that. Like when I hear those things, I'm like, man, makes me wonder at times, is this faith real? Do we really have the Holy Spirit in us if we sound so worried and afraid and scared and nervous and anxious and you know, because the Holy Spirit's supposed to give us a calm and a peace and a joy that surpasses all this understanding. He's supposed to teach us the things that Christ taught us so that we do the things that Christ calls us to do. And I'm pretty sure, again, that means uh, let's not go get worked up about that side and get, get our thug on this side to deal with the threat on that side. That's just earthly stuff, doing earthly things in earthly ways. And it just doesn't work, man. And it's not very compelling. And that's always going to be my thing. I think we as followers of Jesus should be the most compelling people. And that means then that we are exuding something that is just, it doesn't get pulled into the debates. It doesn't get all worked up about these things. And if we are, maybe that's the place for us to say, Lord, recalibrate me. I need to repent because I'm caring about wrong stuff. Like, I I believe there's an incredible humanitarianism embedded into the message of the kingdom. So we should be engaged in a lot of things that get dubbed political. We should care about a lot of things that that both sides leverage either to get brownie points or to, to make it sound like a threat from the other side. Which is why I say Jesus wouldn't be on the left or the right. He wouldn't be a Marxist. He wouldn't be a fascist. He wouldn't be any of these things, right? Like Jesus would defy all of it. And he would just be looking at it like, okay, man, like, how do you, how do you love your neighbor? How do you do good? How do you go the extra mile and turn the other cheek? All the things we know. How do you act as a good Samaritan? Um, you know, like just the, the stuff that's so routine. Like Jesus helped the poor. He helped the needy. He helped the sick. Like how do we do that? Um, you know, he certainly, uh, was political in the sense of he called out things for what they were, right? And so he saw the folly of Rome's peace by way of the sword. And at the same time, he said, ah, but pay Rome their taxes. Like, he's just like, man, I'm, I'm, and so then the Jews were mad, right? So like, he's making the Romans mad. He's making the Jews mad. Like, he just did that. But his goal was always because there's a greater, more flourishing thing that can be introduced into the world. And that's the thing that he wants you and I to be living for to be dying for, to be loving for, to be caring for, to be invested into, to be caring about. He doesn't want us caring about, caring about all this other stuff that frankly just gets our blood pressure up and our salsa level high and makes us resent human beings. Like as soon as you know you're resentful of human beings, you know you're in the wrong headspace. I know I'm in the wrong headspace, right? As soon as I start thinking that these humans are my foe. These humans are the danger. These humans are the ones we got to stop. Uh, I'm in a bad headspace. Now, some of you go, well, what about like Ukraine? What about stopping tyranny in the world? I'm like, hey, that's for governments to decide, man. I'm talking about us as individuals, what we are meant to do, invest in, and not invest in. That's what I'm talking about. Governments wield sword against sword all the time. That's part of the brokenness of this world. It's why we can't wait for the day and days of Christ to reign as supreme in the world. But until that day, we are called to live like his first advent, not to act like his second advent. I want you to catch that. We're to act like his first advent, not a second advent. In other words, he calls us to live a first coming kind of disposition. The second coming disposition, we can get into how it's a white horse and sword and everything else. You and I are not called to that. We are not called to that tone, that disposition. That is for him. That is not for us. What is for us is we scour the gospels and we see uh, the heart that's displayed, the selflessness that's displayed, the love that's displayed. You look at the cross. I challenge you to look at the cross on a monthly basis. Look at the story of the cross, how he didn't respond, how he didn't react, how he didn't lash out, how he didn't take power into his own hands. Like that is meant to be a commemorative, not just that how we're saved, but how we live. 
And I believe if we can own this very hard to do, but beautiful when it's happening thing, living the cross of Christ, living the kingdom of Christ, living the gospel of Christ, the more we do that, the more we will be everyday missionaries.